I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got, I think you qualify as an old friend, Tom Kim with me. Um, before he does his intro, I'll I'll kind of give him um, a shout out. I met Tom when I was early in the family office conference circuit, and I was stumbling around some ballroom or uh, bar area in Chicago, I believe, and yeah, one of the university clubs. <laughs> yeah, he took he took pity on me and helped Sherpa me around the <clears throat> that initial conference that we've since stayed in touch and he's always been very kind and generous to me and one of the most thoughtful people in the family office space in my experience um so tom thanks for joining me today oh thanks for having me brian and it's nice to think about that memory because it feels like yesterday but i know it's been a decade plus that's so it's great you and i both have a lot more gray hair than <laughs> We did whatever that was. We do. We do. 10 years sure. ago. Um, you have a nice set of hair, especially you. <laughs> <laughs> My COVID hair. Um, yeah, great. And you've got um, a little bit of a different background than I think, you know, the typical fact pattern for a family office um, executive would be. Could you give a little bit um, of your story? Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, interesting. I don't get often uh, asked, you know, the kind of pedigree that led me to to run a single family office uh, that's multi-generational. So I think uh, where I would begin is um, my engineering days. You know, I have a very technical background, chemical engineering out of Cornell University. Thereafter, some research and development work with Motorola. But then uh, that was during the mid to late 90s, and there was a financial engineering revolution. And then so I went to an investment bank uh, in its prime at that time, Bear Stearns, and uh, located myself in Chicago and structured derivatives. And then from there, uh, kind of fell in love with alternative investments, really. Um, I was in a fixed income derivative structuring desk. Uh, we launched a hedge fund. We sold the hedge fund. 
and then after selling the hedge fund, I found myself working for a very successful family office that owned a fund of hedge funds, as well as a fund of private equity funds and a strategic strategic alliance partnership uh, to help launch, you know, hungry executives from other established funds with their own um, flag uh, in the sand um, and their uh, ventures, their enterprises. So that led to running a, a bespoke private enterprise, you know, and it touched a lot of different things, including, like I mentioned, hedge fund, private equity funds, but also real estate, especially commercial real estate. And then uh, we, after the great financial crisis, shuttered the business, like many people want to be over uh, managed by the uh, uh, fiduciary uh, agencies. Um, and established a, a, a G1, a Generation One family office. And then I ran that successfully for about five years, uh, had a multi-asset, multi-strategy background, did as much as I could and almost perfected, I think, that portfolio there. And we thrived uh, in, in many, many different scenarios uh, after the GFC. Um, and uh, you know, recently joined, uh, three years ago, roughly, a new family office to head up um, uh, a portfolio that's over 100 years old, in essence, uh, with shareholders and stakeholders uh, ranging in the 50s um, in terms of number and count. So it's, it's fantastic. It, it's, a, it's an incredible pedigree, as you put it, and story, but you skipped my favorite part, your role as an academic, your PhD, oh, yeah. your adjunct right. professor, visiting right. lecturer. That's, That's my favorite part about your, your story. Because, <laughs> uh, well, you know, this is I why it. it's good to be, I guess, uh, in a conversation, uh, Brian. Yeah, uh, right when the non-compete was placed on me when we sold the hedge fund, um, I really couldn't do what I was designed to do, which was uh, programming and what we now would call algorithmic trading. And, you know, I kind of looked around and I had to take a two year break and, and my crazy brain thought that I could, I could pick up a PhD or a master's in the fine arts and the humanities. And so I got accepted to the University of Chicago uh, English literature program of all things with some fellowships uh, to boot. And uh, boy, was I wrong about finishing in two years. <laughs> it's a very rigorous, very academic program. And uh, I think a little bit of my Asian immigrant background came out because I started it and I didn't want to, you know, stop without completing it. So, um, you know, did finish it. It took a, a long period of time because the GFC was there in between uh, my start as well as finish dates of that program. But yes, I got a doctorate in philosophy uh, in English literature focused on 19th century American lit out of the University of Chicago. And I've always uh, thought the world a very complex three-dimensional place. And so, you know, my contribution back to that space has been teaching courses from time to time in the intersection between culture and capital at you know, universities like the University of Chicago, Northwestern, as well as Loyola. So, yeah, You're, I haven't been uh, able to do as much of that the last three years, though, uh, as I transplanted myself to the West Coast here in the Pacific Northwest. But every once in a while, I'll look at the local colleges uh, here, uh, University of Washington, Lewis and Clark or Clark College and go, hmm, maybe I should ping the department head and, and tell them my crazy ideas for a syllabus on, uh, <laughs> on uh, say, uh, uh, the, the most recent uh, query I have is, uh, if we could discover who uh, the, the, you know, the founder of Bitcoin is, that probably would legitimate that, uh, that uh, uh, cryptocurrency much more than people realize. It, I don't want to go down a tangent here, but that's so weird you bring that up because that's the third time today that um, that 
character. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, uh, yeah, Satoshi. Satoshi. Oh. This is the third time Satoshi's come up in conversation today. So either I'm living in the matrix, Satoshi's trying to get in touch with me, or but they, the, the Buddhists say that you're on the right path when things like that uh, happen. So yeah, yeah. maybe all of the above is occurring. Yeah. Um, we need an analog to Al Gore on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how true or false it may be, we need an analog. I love it. So I want to ask an unfair question that I ask everybody in your space when they come on the show. What is your definition of a family office? My sense of the family office is that it's probably the most frontier aspect of investment management. It is a pooled uh, source of capital where uh, a private family uh, has, has utilized their capital interests to share the history and the growth of their legacy. So it's really, um, you know, investments is somewhat secondary to a family office. Uh, and it sounds anathema to say this, but um, a family office is a congregation or a collection of diverse voices in a family that gets structured together through this idea of capital management. But really, uh, our job as a family office is to find the best ideas that are both financial, but also social to speak to the, the um, stewardship that we're in charge of to manage that asset that's been pooled by the family into an investment office. So I hope that's helpful. There's no right answer. That's why it's a wonderful question. Yeah. Um, everyone has a different answer, but it it's always fascinating to me. We use this term all the time, but the definition is... Um, as they might say in your PhD program, squishy. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think there's you know, obviously gestures to institutionalize the category. There's movements from the private wealth management world, uh, from you know, bulge bracket banks, all the way down to MBA programs that are uh, understanding the multi-characteristic of a family business enterprise that becomes a family office and all of the agential and fiduciary duties that are necessary to, to, to support those principles of the family office. But at the end of the day, it's, it's funny to me because it's, it's not really the investments because you know, many families break apart, family office have a you know, shelf life uh, that sometimes is, is short in our careers, i.e. less than 30 years or 50 years. Um, and it's very hard to, to find families that have a century plus uh, you know, uh, relationship together. And there's a lot of reasons as to why that's the case. Sometimes the corpus, you know, the portfolio's value itself is too low to sustain too, too long of a run because of the liability management that's associated. But, but really the, the social aspect, the symbolic aspect, you know, to use that capital to bring all the diverse family members together, I think is the most important thing for a family office. Else, it just becomes another, you know, service oriented financial product. And this is the line of question that I want to get into you, uh, with you, um, is, you know, given your background, how does working at a family office differ from working on Wall Street? And how has the industry of a family office changed from when you first got into the space where it wasn't really as commonplace even to use that term probably when you first worked with your first family to now it's become de rigueur to have one, right? Even though, even though a lot of people might not be able to define it, everyone wants one. So maybe initially, what was that transition from kind of an old school white shoe Wall Street firm to working with a family like? 
Um, I'd say it was very difficult at first because um, my hiring uh, or my, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to call myself a commodity, but but the the prior family I was, office I was with, I think the founder and their family had an aspirational goal that they wanted their capital tended to and that they wanted their capital to express their desires that were slightly idiosyncratic at times and, and non-professional or non-institutional, as I would say. But in order to do so, they went to the institutional world because they knew what they didn't know, right? That they wanted to borrow the rigor, the risk management, the processual thought uh, process, you know, the thought process, the processual nature of the way we do our work as financial experts uh, and advisors. Uh, and so in the initial phase, I would say that there was a lot of um, you know, I, you know, a lot of founder capital, especially like G1, where they make a lot of money and what they know, you know, very well, obviously they take some, what we would consider orthogonal or binary risk in their business that, that then is very successful. And then they're thinking about legacy stewardship, as well as, um, you know, uh, their heirs and the multi-generational quality of what that capital might do. And then they want to bring the, bring the sort of institutional, uh, professional in. And now I think family offices, because there's so much language out there about what really qualifies as a family office, you need to have more than 250 million or $400 million, let's say somewhere in that range, the number of professionals that's necessary, the types of assets that you might you know, have, uh, very alternative oriented versus traditional uh, stocks and bonds. Um, I think now it's become more commonplace where you could pick someone up from the banking world, for example, right? you know, into the family office space. So um, I'm sorry, I'm thinking, you know, in real time on this, to answer your question initially would be, I think initially um, family offices attracted investment professionals that had an entrepreneurial uh, bias to them, that they enjoyed and respected as well as admired the binary risk that the family office um, uh, utilized to create themselves, right? And then now it's become more where I, I, I run into family office professionals that are much more institutional in there. That is, uh, they're not looking to, um, to, to perform, for example, beyond the uh, capital market, long-term capital market assumptions of the overall diversified portfolio, that they're very focused on capital preservation rather than growth, let's say. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's become a much more institutional place in that way. Uh, and then in terms of just, you know, one-offs, I'm sure other members that have, have talked to you, Brian, you know, in the beginning days, it always did feel like you were wearing, you know, 12 hats, <laughs> like everything from portfolio management to execution, to sourcing, to looking at, you know, the local triple net, uh, lease opportunity to the, you know, storage, uh, warehouse, opportunities uh, and, and hedge funds and private equity funds uh, from the lower middle market to the brand names. And then now you wear about six hats, but you still wear a lot of hats because it's you know very dynamic still. And I think, I think until you get to wear one hat, which is what I think an institutional world would want, right? A professional is perfected. They work towards a collective and a brand that is a large you know, multi-purpose but also, you know, in the thousands of employees, right? You're you're perfected and specialized in one, and I guess that's the way I would describe it. Where in the in the heyday, you're you're doing twelve jobs. Now maybe you're doing six jobs. Maybe in you know ten more years, we'll only be doing three jobs. Does that make sense? And so 
it has you know the privatization of the world um the uh the asymmetric distribution of that privatization to um, a lot of very powerful um uh, institutions and families you know i think i think has has continued so uh, along with that there will be more specialization I, I i would i would i would venture you know it's the it's the maturation of an industry right so yeah and that's exactly what i want to hear your thoughts on because to your point I was reflecting on this before our call. I've been in the family office world for 15 years now since I buried my wife. And it very much, when you went to those initial conferences, it very much felt like the Wild West. Yeah. And there was almost this limitless possibilities of, of, of what you could do from an investment standpoint. And that's still the case with a lot of first generation wealth creator, entrepreneur, G1 family office groups. But there weren't the, to the extent there are today, the MSD Capital, Pritzkers of the world who have what, in my opinion, are multi-strat private equity platforms right. that are highly institutionalized, that are competing directly with the bullish bracket banks for talent, as well as the tech world. It just, it feels very different when you talk to those folks than it did 10 plus years ago. That's and right. I like, it's interesting to hear your concept or your term that you used maturation do you think that is the logical development it's going to be its own family offices are going to be its own animal within this larger financial ecosystem and they're going to have flexibility right within terms of their time horizon um and also just the amount of capital now i think is different than it was 15 years ago does it feel that way to you also it does, but you know what? Wonderful thing about our capitalist system is that there's a recycling of capital, right? There's always new capital that's created. There's, uh, unfortunately, you know, capital that's lost. But for the most part, more more creation than destruction. And um, instead of a singular line, I kind of think of it as kind of a rolling waves, right? We're getting better and better, but we sometimes come back in the wave you know, crests, it, it falls and then it gets sucked in. It, it, it you know, it, it's, it's constantly ebbing and flowing, you know, back and forth. And I, but still sort of moving forward this wave, right? And I think um, in that it's sort of analogous to the way we think about hedge funds. Like how many times have we said the hedge funds are dead, right? And they've been around for a hundred years now, right? And one wonders like, how much is the discussion on, on fees or how much is the discussion on the utility of alpha versus beta returns or the thesis around efficient market or inefficient abnormal you know, markets. I think that's part of the energy of the hedge fund complex and it'll always be with us, right? So I think in analogously or parallel in the family office, this idea that, oh, we always had this dream that it's a frontier, you know, wild west, but now, we've matured and you know the vintages are older and we've become perfect. I think that's part of the energy of the family office. And that's the dynamism because when you meet other families that are in that on a different timeline of where that is, like you mentioned G1 versus G3 versus G6 beyond, right? I think they're at different locations of what the capital means to them and, and what the stewardship of that capital you know, implies. And I think that's why and maybe this is um, thinking on the run again, is why I mentioned that I think investments are second to a family office. I think that's why I, I go back to this because that purposefulness of the family office, once you say, you know what, I do want an office, I do want to somewhat more responsibly structure how my capital and my 
wealth is being managed and do it not just for me, but for my uh, partner, my wife, my children, their children, their children's children. Like it just kind of, it's, it's a more social and more symbolic gesture to what it means to be part of that family and your responsibility to the society at large. And so I think that element is sometimes missed. And, and I work on that all the time with my team. It does infect as well as influence uh, and in fact, on the sense of like, wait, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going down this path on a wonderful investment opportunity, but then it catches a cold, like, wait, did, are we doing this for us? Because we're investment professionals and it just looks so juicy. Or are we actually, you know, living the, and inspiring the family ownership that this investment can also bring them together? It's a very uh, much an art more than science there. And, I, and that's what I sort of mean by investments kind of come second, even though it's always driven, you know, it's uh, the portfolios is our top of mind concern. Uh, it, you know, it has to somehow activate connectedness for the family ownership, which could be broad, especially for multi-generational families. So I, I want to dig in a little bit more to that last comment you make, because you've worked with first generation wealth creator, people that have launched a family office, right? They've had their liquidity event, they've had the success. And now they want to create a multi-generational time horizon corpus of assets. Right. And now you're currently working at a family that's been around for a hundred years or longer, maybe. For the asset age. Yes, absolutely. Our oldest asset is Timberland that um, was acquired in 1920. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's incredible. And there's probably a lot of them, but could you highlight some of the differences there in terms of investment thesis, culture, um, how the family interplays with the professionals. I, I'm much more interested in the qualitative components than I am necessarily the quantitative. Okay. So I would say on a cultural basis, um, you have a much more unitary, single vision, at worst moments, dictatorial uh, mandate from a founder family office for the right reasons. This, this founder has been extremely successful in doing what he or she has been doing in order to create the family office. And then that trickles in, and I know you, you want you didn't want me to be too quantitative, but on the portfolio side- You can't help yourself. You're a, you're a quant trader by, by nature, I'm, I understand. I'm also a chief investment officer and president you know, of this family office that I yeah. company, you know, privileged to serve. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bifurcated, right? So they have the binary risk appetite still. So they'll be, the G1 families will still wanna do something that is binary like and then they also have this way on the other side of that of that distribution of possibilities very safe something that's like more of a cash flow generator kind of income oriented and so you get what we call a barbell distribution or a barbell portfolio of, of of extremely high risk and extremely low risk in the in the g1 families and then i think as you evolve and it, or if that family continues you get away from the expertise of the founder and the risk-taking of that founder, you get into more capital preservation and income. And so growth is still apparent because you have liability management that you have to, you have to meet. The owners would like um, a distribution. They, they wanna know why you know, this family capital is doing what it's doing and how are they benefiting from it, but also the, the world at large. And so it becomes a lot more diversified in a more in a traditional sense where you're, I've met many G3 families, especially G6 families, and they have a much more kind of quasi endowment or quasi pension model to their 
portfolio allocations because it's sort of like its own humming investment engine, right? So I would characterize that creates a culture of more institutional, but also a little less risk-taking, a little less entrepreneurial sort of in, in spirit. That doesn't mean that um, every once in a while in that family, in terms of the culture, one of the things I've noticed is, you, you know, the founder family, you have the sort of the psychology of the founder, right? And their heirs, it's so insurmountable. It's so high. Like, what can I do to show my father and mother that I, I, I can, I'm so thankful for this, but also I'm going to go off and do, I mean, it's so high. I mean, can you imagine like being, it, it's just, it's just very, very difficult to live up to that expectation. I can imagine that, Tom. <laughs> right. There you go. So I, I'm always like, wow, that that has to be tended to, nourished, you know, worked on and openly discussed, you know, for a successful family office to get to that G2 and G3 stage. And then the G3 on, they have the imagination still of that guilt, the imagination of their inheritance. Their, am I worth this? Right. And again, that culture continues, but it's it gets a little bit more diluted, but it's still there. It's still very much present, I've noticed. So let's rewind, you know, in terms of culture and, and the distinction, I would say stark differences, you know, founder G1 tends to be, you know, maybe the same risk profile blended, but they have huge binary risk projects and much larger fixed income projects. And then as you evolve, you get the median in, in the distribution. They want it to be more in, in line with their expected returns, you know, their total portfolio. So um, that's how I would describe it. But in terms of psychology and the culture, I think you just replace the founder psychology of their success with the imagined success, right? You know, and, and I, I find that to be remarkable. And, and there's a lot of, I've never found a family office owner member who was arrogant, actually. I've never encountered, I mean, like in all my, you know, journeys of meeting other family members, the, the bloodline ones, the, the inheritors, they're always very, in general, uh, self-effacing, humble, inquisitive, wanting to always learn. Even if they know a lot, they won't say they actually know as much as you know that they know. Does that make sense? And so I think that culture is really an admirable one, actually. And it's, it's part of that stewardship of tending to that capital saying, I don't know what I don't know, but I trust in the collective, you know, to work together and being together, we can get to the next generation and continue our good work. So let's unpack that a little bit more. What are the common themes or fact patterns that you see in families that are able to sustain over a multi-generational time horizon? Because it's, it's a challenge. It is. So this is going to sound so like, like, so like soft, you know, so soft, but, and it's not because of my PhD in the humanities. You know? Is it, it is what it is. What is it? I've thought about this because, um, you know, I don't serve as a family advisor in any way, but I have been um, privy to seeing how well family advisors, the, the good ones work together with the family members. And, um, in the household interviews that I conduct with the family advisor as president of the, of the family office, you know, one of the things I noticed is, you know, families are messy, right? You, you have sisters and brothers, they get married, they get divorced, they remarry. You know, it's not, the family office doesn't mean like you have a singular tree, uh, a family tree, right? There's splinters and, and, and whatnot. And so 
The soft answer is, I, I swear, there's this one um, generation three uh, that I not close to, but you know, admire. And she married twice. Uh, her original children were part of the bloodline. Her new husband is not, right? And so there, you could imagine all this politics, all this hatred, jealousy, anger, right? Conflict, because there is something tribal about family offices, right? Let's be honest, it's bloodline, right? So what was amazing is this woman was able to be so non-judgmental, so loving and patient to her children and her brother and her ex-husband and her new husband and his children that I think that's, it's not really our job of agents of the family office or investment office to provide this. We can only admire when we see it, like this is a great family office to work for in that way. That's what I've noticed, that if, if, the, if the principals that are involved in the business have the quality to want to establish that legacy, true stewardship, protecting the asset and having responsibility to give to their heirs. And in order to do that, they have to swallow their pride. They have to say their you know, set aside their time and, and forgive and listen and be patient and be non-judgmental and be wise also. Give counsel when counsel is necessary. I think that is probably, and that's the, that's the funny thing to me on the, in the investment professional side and my peers over at Private Wealth Management is going to just kill me because they're so smart and they're so good at what they do. You know, they're thinking about liability solution. How much cash are you going to burn? How can we structure the trust? There's estate planning. These, these are the tax issues that are coming up. We'll help preserve it. All of it is absolutely rest necessary. It is the sinew and the blood and muscle of it all, right? But the thing that makes that client come back is they need a model of that behavior from their family to say that I will do the same. And it's not a Christian ethos. It's not a, you know, non-Christian or... It's really like that quality of that individual and the collective of those individuals. And it's, sometimes you see it and sometimes you, you know there's gonna be breaks because you know maybe there was a difficult divorce or a difficult marriage, you, you know what I mean? Someone that wasn't approved by the family. It, it, you know, like it's, you see it in, in a lot of different ways, but I, I find it fascinating because I'm, my job seems pretty easy then. It's just, okay, here's the challenge. Here's the liability solution we have to meet. Here's the diversified portfolio we have to engage in. And of course, I, I, I try to inspire through my proposals to the board um, of the family uh, uh, to, to try to effectuate a longer term plan of, of togetherness, right? not just in returns, but, uh, but are there symbolic gestures of businesses to get involved with and whatnot. But yeah, I'm sorry to give that soft answer, but it, it is, I think it's absolutely essential. I think it's absolutely essential. No, in my experience and opinion, and from talking to a lot of other professionals like yourself, it's it's the qualitative, soft, sticky issues that are the ones that get families through it, but they're also the ones that blow families up. It's it's usually not the investments, right? I mean, right. if you've made it multi-generational, you have somebody who's, you know, knows their stuff, worth their salt running the show, it's not going to be an allocation problem. It's going to be inter-family, intergenerational drama That's and issues, right. Right. lack and of I communication think, typically. Yeah, and I think uh, if there's any warning I can give, um, so in all that we talked about, you know, we haven't talked about passion projects. And what I mean by this is uh, families that come together and think, well, since we're investing together, I have a great idea and this is my passion. 
and I want my other family members to benefit from this, but we also know they can, they, it could be a cost, right? It could go badly. And I think those are, if there's one advice I can give any listener of your show, that's a family member, right? Or uh, on the investment side of the corpus of the portfolio they're managing on behalf of other family members is to really be clear about whether something is a passion project or not. Something that you have expertise in, obviously, you have vested interest in, but it's a very fine line from becoming a, we have an expert internally that understands the risk reward, and then this is a passion project. And the likelihood of success is actually pretty low, but I, I get meaning out of it, dealing with these individuals, having the conversations with the, and I, I think that actually, because you said, you know, because what made me think of this is we were like, typically it's not the investments that blow up a, a family, but boy, those passion projects, they're like bombs that go off because if they go badly, all of a sudden the family thinks of it as, wait, this was the squishy soft thing that we were, we, we trusted in you for and the investments, lack of performance perverts it or even great performance perverts it because then egos get you know challenged and psychologies get mixed. So I'll just put that out there as, you know, whatever you do, no matter how big or small you are, you know, one of the due diligence questions should be, is this a passion project or not, you know, of the singular individual, you know, and I think that's where fiduciaries and agents, we don't have much of a vested interest because, you know, these are not our quote unquote passion projects per se. So how do you thread the needle then between encouraging entrepreneurship within the family and, you know, stepping into potholes of these passion products, projects that end up blowing up? Uh, distributions. So if there's a family member that has a great idea for the next cryptocurrency blockchain, the next AI-based healthcare platform, whatever it may be, we, we know what the growth arenas are, right? And industries are. Um, either they take their distribution and use that as an anchor and invite others through a sidecar outside of the corpus, right? Or people are honest about that deal and then understand we can, we can support but it has to still go through the same process of an investment committee of thorough due diligence that the agents are not blamed for because the agents didn't, like myself, the CIO, the PMs, the managing directors, the analysts didn't actually get behind. So uh, distributions actually help a lot in that in terms of the family member slash investment professional. So I'm talking about those instances where, uh, you know, father to son, let's say on a G1, right? A generation one family office where it's the son's passion project and the father loves the son or the father loves the daughter and says, okay, to the daughter, we'll go in for X millions because I, I can see you're passionate about this, right? And then that can become a, a, a moment where the siblings resent that other sibling if it blows up. Do you see what I'm saying? Instead, take it out of the corpus, make it a distribution, make it more equal, give the opportunity to the other siblings you too have a risk budget that I'll set aside for you. And if you have your passion projects, let's do it that way. But the collective capital, let's still all agree on together. I hope I'm, I'm trying to make a very pragmatic example out of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's, and that's useful. Um, and I like that approach a lot because if you really do believe in it, put your money where your mouth is, right? Use, yeah use the resources available to you. And if other people want to support it, that's great. But if it's not on mandate and doesn't match the asset allocation that the corpus is working towards, then it 
you know, there shouldn't be exceptions for, for you because then you're setting a precedent. Exactly. Everybody sees it at the kitchen table and exactly. that's when and problems accrue. The passion projects actually become emblematic uh, entrepreneurships in their own right. You know, if it's successful and they're like, oh my God, high five, that's awesome. You know, your vineyard is doing extremely well. We're so proud of you. You know, we can still celebrate that win because that risk budget is what that individual decided to do and not another cousin or a, you know, second cousin. Does that sort of make sense? It, and it actually brings more richness to the conversation because when they get together for their annual or quarterly meetings, they get to talk about their businesses and not worry like money is inflected with also uh, my obligation to my cousin. Oh my God, I made money for him or oh my God, I lost money for her. Does that, does that make sense? So it, I think that kind of uh, recognition of when a passion project is a passion project and then budgeting the risk towards it properly is key to keeping a family together, whether you're a G1 or a G6. And also having the recognition that the family can bring resources to bear beyond just the capital for these opportunities, right? I mean, the human capital component of these family offices can be immense in terms of the networks and the resources available to them. So, you know, there's things beyond just writing a check that you can help lift these things off and that shouldn't be shortchanged either. I'm, we're bumping up against time, but I am curious, you're now doing a lot of real estate oriented type investments. You have a, a quant hedge fund type background. Where are you seeing, I don't want to ask a question that's going to be stuck in time because these are evergreen conversations, but how are you seeing the real estate ecosystem evolve in terms of family offices working with sponsors and are sponsors evaluating working with a group like yours and traditional private equity or other resources? Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense necessarily, oh, but okay. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, um, I like how you characterize me as, as such a uh, engineering nerd, which is great because I, <laughs> I, I could pass any of my courses I took back in the 90s. Um, uh, if I had to take the exams or prelims again right now, but, um, it's about, uh, here, here's the way I would approach it. Um, we have a relatively alternative portfolio, meaning alternative investments portfolio. It's about 80% in commercial real estate, timberland, private equity, private credit, and 20% in public securities of all ilk, passive allocations, as well as some active management, you know, ranging from, you know, the most uh, plain to the most uh, plain vanilla, vanilla to the very exotic, like, uh, you know, a long straddle strategy that accumulates Delta, you know, to, to effectuate the gamma. So I'm, I'm putting that out there so that you're like, yeah, I get it. You're still the Quan hedge fund guy on that. But it's such a minor allocation. And in the history of my involvement, you know, helping set up the family office uh, to, you know, uh, building it, to running it, to then joining a new family uh, and helping them create a, a legacy plan for a, you know you know hopefully another hundred years you know in a completely different type of mandate but but you know the way I think of those asset allocations models as well as um, the efficient frontier in them but in each of the in each of the categories where family offices thrive is you know you ask the question how should sponsors be thinking are we only dealing with private equity commercial real estate fund managers or even in the private equity, are we only dealing with you know, sophisticated GPs? We welcome all and any active manager. That is still the Wild West. 
So we have very sophisticated general partners with very deep, deep, you know, on their 10th vintage type fund managers to their second vintage manager, to the independent sponsors, to the co-invest, to the direct investments into operating companies. And that is the gift of family office where in commercial real estate, we're not obliged to follow just the NACREF allocations forevermore. Um, I'm fascinated by how much more efficient public REITs have, have been in this current environment, for example. If you look at the, and I'm going to st stick with commercial real estate because you asked that, if you look at the, the allocation uh, weights on a Vanguard REIT or a uh, MSCI REIT ETF, you know, you have this new segment called specialized, you know, in, you know, so it's no longer just the typical retail office, apartments, et cetera, multifam, et cetera. It actually hits on the evolution of the space, right? They have, you know, data centers, they have towers, they have storage. And I use that as an analogy for the family office because we're always looking for that new idea. We're always looking for that new sponsor. You know, you and I have had many conversations. I know that you're uh, in not quite, luckily for you, most likely, uh, post-COVID, you're not in the primary markets, sometimes not even in the secondary markets, you're in the tertiary suburban markets. My goodness, thank goodness you have space and parking and people who, you know, have access to a, a facility that's not at a major epicenter um, that's dense. So those are the types of things, like, we continue to talk and we continue to think about um, where on the asset allocation sites for any alternative uh, asset class, nothing is prescriptive. We don't just follow you know, what's on paper or what's been sort of talked about at the institutional level that this is what you need to be diversified. Yes, we're diversified, but we're always hunting and seeking the new ideas of a transaction. So, and, and it goes in all ways, the scale of the deal, you know, we can hit, you know, we can participate in a $12 million deal. We can participate in a $100 million deal. We can participate in secondary markets. We can participate in tertiary markets and sometimes in the primary markets. So I would just answer the question with, I'm so happy to be in this seat as an investment officer, because we truly can somewhat control the narrative of being at the right place at the right time, because we're not structured institutionally to only represent one asset class or only one type of diversified portfolio. Sorry, that was a really long-winded question. answer to your question. No, and, and that's the perfect answer. And I think that's a great place to, to end the conversation. Um, Tom, I want to thank you for taking the time. You're at the lake with your family, so I appreciate you carving out some of your time. You are a busy man. And I want to thank you for always being so kind and, and generous to me over the years. It's been fun to stay connected and I wish you the best of luck um, with your current gig. And hopefully we can grab a drink in person soon at, at one of these events. Well, that'll be nice. And just to bookend your story, you know, we're still not too old because I bumped into you in DC at another conference event. And so, you know, you know, we, we are, uh, we are uh, birds of a feather, I think. And so, you know, appreciate you reaching out to me and, um, I think the world of you as well, Brian. So thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Tom. All Stay right. Touch. Bye. See you later. Bye. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. 
This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.